following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Christ is victorious, and that's what the Bible tells us, right? So, most clearly, we find that in the book of Ephesians. So, find the book of Ephesians, and we're going to look at this theme of Christ's victory, and then we're going to land in our passage today. If you can remember, Ephesians 1, Paul prays for the saints in Ephesus, and he wants them to know something, and that is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and then he, he writes this amazing passage. Listen to what he says in verse 1, 20 to 23. He says, Which he worked by, in Christ by raising him from the dead, seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He put all things in subjection under his feet, Gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ is victorious. That's his position. Victorious over sin, over death, over this world, and over Satan and his dominions. And I just said the word over, over, and over. And that means he is overhead. He's above. He is top. He is superior. His victory puts him above his enemies. And Paul says he's not just above, he's far above. And that doesn't mean far in space, but rather far in position. And so Christ is over, and clearly over, every single power. Not only in the physical realm, but in the spiritual realm. Not only some persons, but every name that is named. Not only at the moment he rose from the dead, but in every age. Now, he's not just over all things, but all things are also subject to him. He rules all things. All things are under his feet. The seated, victorious Savior King sits with authority. Now, you have nothing under your feet. You have some shoes. You have some, something man-made. And then you have something God-made. That's it. But Christ has everything under his feet. What a victory. And I want to say, what a cosmic victory you like that word? Cosmic. It's big. It's a word that points to all reality. The universe, what we can see and what we can't see. The victory of Christ is beyond earth. It's beyond this universe. It is beyond this realm. And it is what Ephesians calls the heavenlies. And so his victory extends to the physical and spiritual realms. So if the universe has no end, his victory has no end. It stretches from the empty tomb all through the cosmos. It extends up to and is celebrated in heaven and it extends down and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. And it's uh, just the biggest word I could think of. Cosmic, right? What's bigger? The victory of Christ is cosmic. Now, I love victories that are close, right? Football, basketball, if it's close, it's so fun. Uh, close calls are addicting. I mean, you think of like movies, it ends with smoke, Fire, explosion, scream, boom. And the dust settles and all the heroes look at each other and they say, that was close, right? That's every Marvel movie, just so you know. <laughs> and there's thousands of them and they all end the same 
And I'll, I'll watch all of them. I think it's really fun. I love a close call. But the victory of Christ was not close. Let's be clear. Jesus didn't rise from the dead and look at the disciples and say, whew, that was close. Right? No, it was never a close call. Rather, it was a cosmic plan of redemption, which God has been revealing since before time. The victory of Christ was always the plan. That's Ephesians 1. The cosmic victory of Christ was certain. We actually just didn't know it, and that's why Paul calls it a mystery. Christ is head, and he's given himself to the church, and that, what is the church? It's the called out believers who have been saved. How are they saved? Well, that's Ephesians 2. God, who is full of mercy and love, gave them every gift needed for salvation to be accomplished. Meaning, he graces them with faith. And so every victory of Christ is given to them. Christ is raised up, and he drags the saints with him. And they receive all the benefits. They're a new creation and a new people. Now, the problem is, every now and then, the people who have been saved by the victory of Christ just don't get along, right? Jew and Gentile of of Ephesus, this melting pot of a pagan city. It was a church filled with people from all different backgrounds, and so they had some internal problems. And Paul reminds this church in verse 219, so then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but rather fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. What does that mean? Jew and Gentile, man and woman, rich, poor, smart, not so smart, mature, and not so immature, or not so mature, You're all one family. You're all in God's house. They have to understand, for the Jews, this is is mind-blowing. The children of Abraham promised a nation, a land, and a blessing. Now I have to scoot over and make room for the pagans. Why? Look at 3.6. The Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus Through the gospel. Isn't that a powerful gospel? The gospel transforms and transplants. The gospel, the good news of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, takes all the sinful individuals, no matter their background, makes them not only new people, but one people. And that one people is what? The church. So Jesus came down from heaven, died for sinners, conquered sin and death, unleashed the Holy Spirit and transforms all people so that the church can exist. Now, his victory results in the church, and you are at church. Good morning. Uh, You look great. You you know, you're here. You made it. But the question I want to ask you at this very moment and answer to yourself, why are you in church? Why did you come today? Maybe you're, the first thought is, I want to grow. I want knowledge. I want to be encouraged in my faith. And that's good. But just so you know, church is not about you. Maybe you want to hear from the Bible, try to understand this ancient book. But just remember, church is not about you. Maybe you came to see family and friends and fellowship. That's good, but church is not about you. Maybe you have no idea why you're here. No clue. That's not good. Uh, But still, church is not about you. 
I'm a church planter and a pastor and a missionary. So why? Why, why church plant? Why support church planting? Is the goal of the church to create loving communities around the world? Is the goal of the church simply to make more churches? If Jesus died and rose and conquered and is victorious so that the church can exist, then you must be able to know and understand why the church exists. What is the point of all this? Why does the church exist? And for this we have an answer from our Lord through the Apostle Paul. That's Ephesians 3, 8 to 10. That's our passage today. And we're going to look rather quickly at verses 8 to 9, and then we're going to slow down in verse 10. Let's read Ephesians 3, 8 to 9. Paul says, To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to proclaim to the Gentiles the good news of the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light for all what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. Look how Paul humbly expresses his ministry. Least of all is given to me to reveal a mystery All now who are transformed and transported into the family of God, they are the church. But remember, at one time, this was not known. It was hidden. This was a mystery. But now it is revealed. I see this trend uh, that, that some people do in America. It's called a gender reveal party. Have you ever done that? Right? So basically... Uh, family gathers, you've seen this, and they pop a balloon, and what comes out? Pink or blue, right? They cut a cake, pink or blue. And then everyone screams, and they're so happy, and they put the video up, and we scream, and we're happy, and then we know what to buy, right? But before that moment, it was a secret, a mystery. And then there's a moment with the big reveal. Now, the trick is, there's one person there that day that knew the secret, right? They put the frosting in, They put the fireworks in, the smoke, and then the big reveal. One person knew the secret. And what Paul is saying is this mystery, which Paul mentions, it was a divine secret, meaning who knew the answer? Only God. God had a mystery, a divine secret. Now, there are lots of things that God has always made known, and then there are things that God only knows, and there are things that God makes known through time. And Paul had this amazing, special privilege of opening the box and popping the balloon, launching the fireworks, but rather than pink or blue, the big reveal is this, the blessing promised long ago for all nations has come. Not that all nations become Jews, but rather that all nations and Jews now become one new person. Gentile, Jew, man, woman, rich, poor, American, Albanian, Every age, race, nation can be saved by the victory of Christ. That's a big reveal. Unfathomable riches for all because Christ is victorious. He's triumphant. And you all get to be in His parade. His victory is your victory. And you all, plural, together, corporately, are now one in Christ. What a big reveal. That was hidden in God who made all things. That's Paul's mystery. The big reveal party of God. One new man, new body, one church. And why did God make the church? What's the purpose? Why does the church exist? Let's read verse 10. And we're going to park here today. Okay? And answer this question. What is the purpose? Let's read Ephesians 3.10. So that 
the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. There it is. The purpose of the church. Now let's break this down. I think there are three clear aspects of the church's ultimate and cosmic purpose. One purpose and one goal and one cosmic purpose with with three facets. Three aspects or three legs on the stool. You get me? Now, how do we know that this is a purpose statement? Because it begins with what? So that. In order that. King James says, to the intent that. I like that. And all these express our purpose, intention. And the purpose and intention of the church in this verse is so clear. Here's the first aspect of the church's cosmic purpose. Number one, the church reveals God's saving plan. The church reveals God's saving plan. Paul states, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. Meaning what was not known can now be known through the church. So the church by its very existence is a testimony of what? Paul says, the manifold wisdom of God. Now manifold is not a word you use, am I right? We don't say that word very often. I mean, I dare you to use that today. Let me know how it goes. What does it mean? It's a word that means various, rich, and colorful. Manifold is only found in this verse in the New Testament, but it expresses richness of a singular thing, inexpressible richness. Now you have to notice, he doesn't say the many wisdoms of God or various wisdoms of God. Rather, he says wisdom, singular. This singular thing, wisdom, has layers and layers and layers of richness and beauty. Now, you have heard this word before. When Joseph was given one coat with many colors. It was a coat with manifold color. Layers and layers of beauty. Every thread purposefully and intricately placed, creating a beautiful design. His coat was so full and so rich. I mean, no wonder his brothers threw a big fit, right? And the manifold wisdom belongs to who? It belongs to God. He possesses it, and he's the source of it. And so what is our first aspect of the church's cosmic purpose? The church reveals God's saving plan. Every thread woven in order to create a plan of salvation for all people. The church's very existence is the revelation of God's plan. Meaning the plan for the church was made before creation. He chose and predestined the church. He redeemed and adopted the church. And he sealed it. All of those are actions of God. And they're threads of his manifold wisdom. It was hidden. And now it can be revealed. It can be displayed. It can be shown through the church. And that means the church exposes it. It shines a spotlight on the great plan of God. The church's very existence is proof, evidence, and factual, concrete, undeniable testimony of God's rich, beautiful, and layered plan, right? Now, you have to look at this verse and notice. He doesn't say, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is known, or the manifold wisdom of God was known, or will later be known, but he says it might now be known. What does this mean? It means God's great saving plan can be on display right now. It can be evident right now. That's climactic, isn't it? 
In this very moment, right now, God is on display through the church. All of God's great manifold wisdom and plan of salvation can presently be seen, but it can also not be seen, which is why he later calls the church to walk in a manner that is worthy. It's why he calls for the church to be unified. It's why he calls the church to put off evil deeds, to walk in light, walk in love, walk in wisdom, act like the adopted, redeemed, forgiven, sealed body of Christ. And if the church walks worthy, then the wisdom of God is on display now, right now, in the present moment. Not later in heaven and glory, but right now. The cosmic victory parade is marching, and the church marches behind Christ as a testimony to all He's done. Meaning the church is proof that God is infinitely and manifoldly a saving, gracious, forgiving, good, perfectly loving God. What a revelation. But to who? Who needs to see this? Who's watching this parade? Who is this revealed to? Look again in verse 10. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities. This isn't one person. This is a revelation to many persons. Persons who have position and power. And we've learned that the church reveals God's saving plan. Our second aspect of the church's cosmic purpose is, number two, the church announces Christ's great victory. The church announces Christ's great victory. Now we need to understand, who are these rulers and authorities? Paul says in Ephesians 1.20, referring to Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. These rulers and authorities have been conquered by Christ. Ephesians 6.12 says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil. The book of Ephesians refers to powers and authorities three times. But Paul mentions powers and authorities elsewhere. 1 Corinthians 15.24, he says, Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, and Father, when he abolished all rule and all authority and power. And Colossians 2.15, when he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. His victory causes rulers and authorities to be disarmed. They've dropped their weapons. He is triumphing, and he will continue to triumph. Now, the apostles made something super clear for us. Christ's victory was over the rulers and authorities, and the rulers and authorities are not of this realm. Right? In creation, God, who made all things, he made the physical and the spiritual. So you have, like, you have a rock, which is physical, but no life. And you have a plant, which is physical and has life, but not the breath of life. And then you have man that is physical and spiritual because he is made in the image of God. And then you have angels, which are not physical, just spirit. They're different than us, but they are real. And they're watching. That saving plan which the church reveals is to powers and authorities. Now, an important passage, 1 Peter 1, 1 he says, Concerning the salvation, meaning the saving plan 
the salvation of believers who are born again by God's great mercy. He says that the prophets have been searching for this Savior and searching for this salvation. And when it arrived, these things, the Savior and salvation, are things, what does he say? Things which angels long to see, long to look. Why would angels desire to see salvation? Isn't that weird? They want to see. They desire to see salvation. And God wanted His people to know they are watching. Angels are looking. Now, if you remember uh, Old Testament, God gave Moses these crazy instructions to build a tabernacle. And inside uh, the tabernacle was to be the holy place. And inside the holy place was the holy of holies. And inside the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant. Remember? And this box had a lid on it that was really unique. On top was to be two angels made of gold or cherubim. It says in Exodus 25, the cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings, facing one another, and the faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. Turned toward the mercy seat, as in looking down. They're watching. They've always been watching. Now, we say sometimes, an angel was watching out for me. The angel was by my side. Now, the Bible tells us that angels are watching, but not you. Rather, they're watching the unfolding of God's manifold wisdom. The Bible says that there are angels who praise God, angels who declare Him holy, the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's an angel's song. And one day these angels who watch will praise and worship God and all of heaven will be filled with angels declaring the marriage of the Lamb and His bride. That is the day when the church, the bride of Christ, is fully glorified and brought into eternity with Christ. On that day angels will praise God because His manifold wisdom is known, meaning all His promises were true, all His choices were right, all His will was fulfilled and from the very beginning they watched the whole thing. They witnessed all of it. But on the other hand, there are spiritual rulers and authorities in Ephesians that are different. Angels who do not praise God. The Bible refers to them as demons. Unclean spirits. Evil spirits. Spiritual beings who were long ago cast out of heaven. Revelation 12.9 tells us the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Not all angels are good. Not all praise God. And these spiritual beings are in line with Satan, big time. They're organized. They have rank. And they long to look into this salvation, but they can never have it. As a sinner, you have fallen short of God's glory. You have fallen. But if you follow Christ, Christ raised you up and saved you, and you are part of his body. You have salvation, and you can never lose it. Amen? But the angels who fell, they were cast out of heaven with no shot of return. Christ did not die for angels He did not take on the form of an angel. He took on the form of man. So they cannot be redeemed. They cannot be saved. And while they may hate you for your salvation, at the same time, they can't look away. They must watch the unfolding of God's wisdom. 
which ultimately leads to their eternal judgment and damnation. But before that day, there is a battle you are in. Not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness. You have salvation. They can't take it. But they want to rob the church of every blessing. They want to bring the church down. But Christ's church will not fall. It cannot, because He conquered. And so we are more than conquerors. We, the church, are a proclamation to the rulers and authorities who have rebelled against God that they lose. They are defeated and God's manifold wisdom wins. The church reveals the saving plan of God. The church announces the victory of Christ. Now let's read this verse one more time. I hope you've memorized it by now. 3.10 So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The final objective in the church's cosmic plan, number three, the church testifies in the spiritual realm. Now your Bible may say in the heavenly places or in the heavenlies. It's an interesting choice, isn't it? He doesn't say the rulers and authorities in this world, but in the heavenly places, which is plural. It's more than one place, but it's not this world. What are the heavenlies? Paul has actually been building, uh, snowballing this idea, the whole book. Uh, let me show you. One, three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. One twenty, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Two, six, and raise us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And 6.12, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. The heavenlies, the heavenly places, is the spiritual reality you live in now, and you will live in forever. We see that word heaven, and we immediately think, oh, this is about the future. This is about eternity. But it's not. The heavenlies or heavenly places are a reference to your spiritual reality. So let me prove it. Answer me right now. Do you have right now all the blessings of God? Yes, you do. Is Christ seated in authority over the spiritual realm right now? Right now, yes. Are you currently seated in Christ's victory in the spiritual realm? Yes. Are you fighting powers and authorities in the spiritual realm? Yes. Our life is spiritual. And so the church testifies in the spiritual realm, which is another reality. Now, we live in a lot of realities, right? We have the physical reality, uh, psychological reality, virtual reality for some of you. But do not ever get confused. Don't ever forget your greatest and truest reality is your spiritual reality. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and now you are made alive. So you're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Currently, that is your greatest reality. The spiritual realm refers to your relationship with God. You have intimacy with the creator of all things. It refers to your union with Christ who has given himself to you spiritually. It refers to your walk with the Holy Spirit. It refers to your communion with God through prayer. 
It refers to every part of your spiritual life, which is the main part of your life. And you, you all, corporately together, as a church, testify to the spiritual realm. You corporately impact the heavens. You corporately impact the powers of darkness. What this means, church, is that every single time you come together, in a worthy manner, a cosmic event happens where God puts himself on display and all spiritual beings, good and bad, recognize again the cosmic victory of Christ. Well, how does the church proclaim that Christ's victory is real? How do we do that? Well, that's Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. It's by walking in a manner worthy of It's by putting off the deeds of darkness. It's by walking in love, walking in light and in wisdom. It's submitting to one another. It's wives who follow their husbands because their husbands lead them as Christ loves his church. It's children submitting to their parents. It's servants submitting to their masters. It is to wear his armor as we wage war in the realm of darkness. That's how we proclaim the victory of Christ. Now when we fail to proclaim Christ's cosmic victory, we actually proclaim something else. When we fail to walk in a worthy manner, we proclaim His victory wasn't actually enough. When we walk in darkness, meaning we continue to practice sin, it is to declare His victory wasn't sufficient. If we hide the deeds of darkness, it is to declare that His victory wasn't transformative, To to be drunk with wine is to declare his victory wasn't satisfying. To divorce is to say his victory wasn't enough for his bride. To rebel against parents and masters is to say his victory didn't actually give him all authority. But Jesus says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he said this because he is victorious. His victory is our victory. But sometimes we fail to live in the victory of Christ. We forget to live in a spiritual reality. Uh, We can compartmentalize our spiritual life. But don't get me wrong. Every single moment is a spiritual moment. Every single moment. Where you, as a spiritual, regenerated saint, you're connected to God Almighty. When the church gathers, the church reveals God's saving plan. It announces Christ's victory and the church testifies in the spiritual realm. When we gather and are living in a worthy manner, according to how he has called us to live, the cosmic victory of Christ, the parade is on. And the spiritual realm witnesses God's great manifold wisdom. And this church, Faith Bible Church, you are part of that. You're part of that. You are proof and evidence of God's great wisdom and heaven and hell are watching. The church of Pogrenitz, Albania is proof of God's great wisdom and heaven and hell are watching. Now, there are places in the world, entire towns, entire cities, nations, where no one knows that where no one knows of Christ. There are places where no one knows 
the one true God, places where no one knows what the church is. And uh, that is wrong. Because that's our purpose. To make disciples of all nations. That the great manifold wisdom of God is proclaimed and proven in heaven and hell. The church is the extension of God's power and Christ's victory. And sometimes when we hear of a place where Christ is not proclaimed or where the church is failing or about to crumble or churches and Christians who need help, sometimes we respond and say, man, that sounds so hard. What do you guys want for lunch? Or, or do we act? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And, and here's the truth. When we do not respond to this command from our victorious Savior, what are we proclaiming? We're actually proclaiming His victory isn't worth proclaiming. Now, God called me to plant and establish a church in a small city, in a small country. But why? So that heaven and hell would tremble at the victory of Christ. It's Sunday morning. Why did you come to church today? So that heaven and hell would tremble at the victory of Christ. His cosmic victory is on parade and behind him follows the church marching in his armor. It's cosmic. It's epic, isn't it? And your smoky dust of a life suddenly becomes a display of Christ's victory. So as I said in the beginning, the church is not about you. You may get many blessings, many benefits, but it's not about you. The church is proof of the cosmic victory of Christ. It is evidence of God's glorious wisdom and plan. So listen, when we pray, heaven is watching. They're witnessing. And hell is trembling. When we sing in one voice in worship, we are proclaiming Christ's victory and they hear and they understand. But more than anything, when we trust and obey Christ and when the church acts like the church, the manifold wisdom of God is known. So this week, today, as you go, as spiritual people living in a spiritual reality, my challenge to you is that you would leave Doing spiritual things, cosmic victory things, big things. Pray together. You confess your sins together. You help each other. You encourage one another. You love one another. Be the church. Make plans to do spiritual things with believers and make plans to do things to proclaim Christ to unbelievers. That's our calling. And let's finish with this final thought. Remember the Apostle John, he's given this awesome vision of what's going to happen. And he sees angels sing, this is what they sing, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The bride of Christ finally will be presented to Christ, perfected, pure and holy. And in this moment, John he turns to the angel and he falls on his knees in worship. He says, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. 
This is what the angel says. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Worship God. Man will worship God because he's been redeemed. And angels worship God because they witnessed redemption. That's how the parade ends. Angels in worship, man in worship, and God receives all the glory. So then, church, let us worship in everything we do. Make God great in all you do. Make God worthy in all you do because everything you do is spiritual. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling as you go today. Don't forget the reality you live in. He's with you, and He's always with you. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that Christ ended with those words, I will always be with you. And we forget that. The church is the result of your great sacrifice and your great victory. And so we stand knowing that our salvation is secure because of His work. We worship knowing that our words are true because of who You are. And I pray that You would lay a burden on each person here to see the world around them as You would have them see it. To see that the church has a, has a purpose beyond this world, but that we proclaim Christ in every place. Thank you that he is worthy of that proclamation. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.